Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. Also, we pray that it acts as an encouragement to you today. We are currently in a series called The Movement, which is a study of the book of Acts. We are specifically looking at God's movement through the early church. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. My name is Jeff and I am one of the pastors here and it is a delight to join with you this morning to study God's word, whether you're here with us live, whether you're watching us online, or if you're with us in the Cross Point Center each and every week, it is a joy to join God in his work of transforming lives as we dive into his word and study what it means for us and how it applies to us. And we're so glad that you've joined with us today. Now, I don't know about you, and I want to get it by a show of hands. How many of you are tired of every time you turn on the news or open up on social media, the spotlight is on the failure of somebody in our society? How many of you are tired of turning on the news and hearing that? Yeah, all of us are in some way, shape, or form. Now, some of those failures are the failure to get in line with the cultural narrative, and we call this the cancel culture. But then there are some failures that are highlighted and spotlighted that are are significant criminal charges. Uh, People are accused of crimes, and and this happens across the gamut of life. We see it happening in the public life. We see it happening in political life. We see it happening more and more regularly in sports life. And yes, we even see it happening in religious and church life. Accusations are made. Charges are brought. Convictions are handed down. Sentences are enacted. And while these types of situations are troubling for us, the ones that seem more troubling are the ones of false accusations, where people are convicted wrongly. And I'm going to introduce you to a man that I didn't know anything about until just recently. His name is Anthony Ray Hinton. Now, Anthony Ray was accused in 1985 of killing two fast food employees by shooting them. And robbing them. And then he was also accused of shooting another fast food employee in a little town a little bit further away. He was tried on really no evidence. They had zero evidence that would prepare or allow them to be able to convict him, and yet they convicted him anyways. They sentenced him to death. 30 years he spent on death row with charges that he knew were false. Eventually, Eventually, Anthony Ray was, was acquitted of the crimes as they actually looked at the evidence and said, no, he really didn't do anything. And, and while things in our culture, as we think about uh, accusations and we think about criminal charges, we have a, a sense of, of joy whenever things go right because of our justice system working rightly, but it really breaks our hearts. Whenever guys like Anthony Ray spend 30 years on death row, can you imagine 30 years all the birthdays that he might have missed, all the opportunities that he could have enjoyed, all gone because of false accusations. Well, this is where we find the Apostle Paul when we get to Acts chapter 26 in our study of the book of Acts. And if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, we see Paul before King Agrippa. He is the the king of the Jews at this time, and he's making his own self-defense about his life. So if you will turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 26, as we're going to be spending our time this morning, and this is where we read these first words. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. 
Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, and we pray that today as we study it, as we read it, you would speak to us through it, that you would challenge our hearts and convict us so that we might be more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. So here we are with Paul before King Agrippa, the Jewish king. But the question we ask ourselves is how in the world did we get here? I mean, last week, whenever we left Paul, he was about to get on a boat and he was headed towards Jerusalem to encourage the churches. But now he's here pleading for his life. What has happened from chapter 21 to chapter 25 for us to have Paul in this situation? Well, Paul in chapter 21, as he was in Jerusalem, comes to the temple. And in this time, there were some Jews from Asia who came and they started making false accusations about what Paul was trying to do, who he was and what he was trying to accomplish. And we see this in chapter 21, verses 27 through 29. We read this. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. That wasn't like they were praying for him. This is not prayer, okay? They weren't laying hands on him to pray for him. They were grabbing hold of him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen him, uh, seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, whenever these accusations are made, the crowd goes into a frenzy. They go into a frenzy. They grab Paul. They start beating him after they've had this mock trial where they presented these charges. They start beating him mercilessly. And it just happens to be that Lysias, who is the, like the mayor of the area, he hears what's going on down in the city. And he's like, what in the world is going on down there? So he sends these Roman guards, they run down and they, they break up the fight. They break up the attack on the apostle Paul. And it's not because of who Paul was. You know, if you're the mayor, you just don't want to play things going crazy in your city. So he wants to silence this. He wants to stop it. So he, he sends them down there. They bind Paul and they take him to safety. Now it's right here where Paul starts making the first of his series of defenses. He starts talking about the gospel and how Christ has changed his life. And so Lysias like a good mayor, he says, I'm gonna to get to the bottom of this. I'm gonna figure out what in the world these guys have against this guy so that we can figure out what's going on and we can try to address it. So what he does is he, he goes to his first plan of attack. We call it interrogation. He's gonna flog Paul, which means he's going to beat him until he tells the truth. And so as Lysias's leaders start that first blow, as they're about to hit it, Paul says, wait a guys, would you... Would you flog a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? And at this time, he's like, <laughs> this guy thinks, okay, I didn't even know who you were, but now we are in a whole different level of playing field here because it was actually wrong for the guard or for Lysias to enact this. In fact, they could have both been uh, relieved of their duties and maybe even relieved of their lives had they chosen this path. So Lysias says, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's stop right here. Let's stop and we're gonna go to another plan of attack. We're gonna call this uh, uh, group intervention. 
And so what he does is he gets the Jewish guys, he gets Paul, he gets himself together, and he says, you know what, I'm going to just get us all together, and we're going to talk this out like adults. We're going to talk this out, and we're going to figure out what's going on so that we can make the best decision. I know that there's just a misunderstanding here. So he gets everybody together. And I'm sure that you guys can probably just assume what's going to happen next, right? Things didn't go as planned. The, the crowd starts getting riled up again, and he says, all right, Paul, we've got to get you out of here. So he takes Paul away again. As Lysias tries to think of his next plan, he overhears this murmur, this story about these guys who have made this oath. They said, we're not going to eat anything until we kill Paul. We're not going to eat a single thing until he's dead. And so Lysias says, you know what, this is, this is out of my pay grade. I'm just the mayor. I don't want anything else to do with this guy. So he sends him on to a man named Felix, who is the governor. So he sends him to Caesarea for Felix to be able to address him. Felix knows this plot. So he says, guys, we're not coming back to Jerusalem. Come up here to Caesarea and we'll try to sort this thing out. So they all come up, another trial, no resolution. This is really a cool part of the story though. At this point, Paul is unbound. They put him in, in house arrest, right? So they basically say, we're gonna put you under house arrest. And this whole time, Felix's wife and Felix start coming to Paul over the course of a two-year period. Regularly, they come in and he shares the gospel with them. They come in, he shares the gospel with them. They keep over and over and over and over, coming back to hear more about Jesus. This is just a phenomenal part of the story. But then after two years, Felix is done with his term. So another guy comes in, his name is Festus. Now, you love these names, right? We got Lysias, we got Felix, now we've got Festus. And so Festus is the new governor in town, and so the, uh, the, the leaders, you'd never guess this, they're the first ones on his doorstep saying, hey, Festus, can we talk with you about Paul? And the way that they do this is just, it reminds me of my kids and dads and grandparents. You'll know this. You never you walk into your house, your kids greet you, so happy to see you, and they say, dad, can I have some candy? And I'm like, absolutely, you can have some candy. Maybe you go here some. And then they're walking around eating their candy. And I hear in the other room, who told you you could have candy? <laughs> Dad told me to do it. Dad told me I could. And at that moment, you just know, oh, man, they played me like a fiddle. They played me. They knew exactly what was going on. I feel that, like that's what these Jewish leaders act like. Festus doesn't know our plan. We'll just get him to bring Paul down here, and, and when he gets here, we'll kill him. But Festus does know the plan, so he says, no, guys, we're not doing this. You guys can come up here, and again, we have another trial. Paul makes another defense. No resolution. Two years Paul has been in this cycle. Eventually, Paul says, all right, guys, it's clear that we're not getting anywhere here. Just send me to Caesar. Just send me to the guy that can actually make decisions here and we'll be able to move on with this. And so Festus is like, ah, thank goodness. I mean, I, keep, I get this guy that nobody wants to deal with. I am sending him to Caesar. So what he does is he sits down and he's gonna write a note to Caesar saying, I'm sending Paul to you and here are the charges. So he sits down to write and he says, um, uh, Paul has, uh, I, I, there's nothing. There's no, no thing that I can write down that is really going to convince you that he needs to be put to death. And so in this time, the king of, of Israel comes to town. His name is King Agrippa, another great name. 
And Festus says, excuse me, Mr. King, I'm really having trouble writing this report. Could you help me? Could you hear what Paul says and maybe we can put our heads together and we can figure out what to do with this guy? So Agrippa sits down with them, chapter 26, where we're gonna be today, and he hears this, this testimony. So I just want you guys to hear this for a minute. The whole legal Jewish council has heard the gospel. Three of the highest political officials in Palestine, Felix, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, have all heard the gospel. Multiple leaders and prison guards and uh, wives of noble people have heard the gospel. Now, I just want you to think just a moment about how taking trials and turning them into gospel opportunities is what Paul does on the regular. It's a reminder for us but that's a sermon for another day. Today, we're gonna to talk about uh, what we have going on here in chapter 26. I want us to focus on uh, something a little bit different here in chapter 26, because I think that it hits on the overall message presented in Acts. You see, the more that the gospel spreads, the more that the idols of the culture, the idols of particular people, the idols of the religious world begin to become undone. And when those idols begin to be tinkered with in any way, shape, or form, heat begins to increase. Attacks begin to increase. The situation becomes more difficult to live a faithful life. And because the situation becomes more hostile, I want us to see in this passage that that we ought to direct our attention to this reality as believers because this teaches us that we need to learn to live an apologetic life. Now, you might think here just the wrong way, so you want me to apologize for being a Christian? You want me to tell people I'm sorry for that? No, that's not what apologetic means. Apologetic comes from the word apologia, which is the word that is used multiple times for Paul making a defense, for Paul making a defense for the truth of the gospel. You see, as the gospel spreads, the spotlight is directed more and more and more on Christians. It becomes brighter and brighter and our actions are scrutinized more and more in our culture. And so our lives serve as a defense or an apologetic for the truth of the gospel. This was true in Paul's day. And I would argue that today, with the expanse of social media and information technology, it is even more necessary for us as believers to consider. So as we get to Paul's speech, this is the culmination of what he's been saying for the last five chapters in Acts as he's been before mayors and governors and kings. I want us to take our attention first to see three, I want us to see three realities, but the first one is this. The first reality of an apologetic life is that it is a transformed life. The first reality of an apologetic life is that it is a transformed life. As Paul begins his defense, he starts with the transformation that God has accomplished in his life. Now, if you are taking notes, and I would encourage you to do this, I'm gonna give you three things that Paul shows. And I would encourage you to take notes on this because this is a way in which you can fashion your own transformation story to talk about how God has transformed and changed you. First, Paul starts with who he was before Christ, who he was before Christ. He was an extremely religious man. 
We see this in Acts chapter 26, verse, starting in verse four. He says, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. So essentially, if you were looking for somebody who was well-schooled in religious law of, of Judaism, you would have had to look no further than Paul. Paul had all the credentials as it relates to studying under the best teachers. He was a, a bright star in the up-and-coming world of Phariseeism. I think about uh, the middle schooler that got signed by the University of Kentucky to come and play football for him. It's kind of like Paul in Phariseeism. They had had his eye on him for a very, very long time. Paul refers to his bringing in the, upbringing in the strictest form of Judaism. Pharisees knew the law better than anybody else. They knew it, they knew it front and back, up and down, left and right. They knew the whole law. Not only did they know it, they sought to live their lives by it. So not only was he extremely religious, he was extremely zealous for this tradition. And this led him to attack the church in an effort to end it once for all. We see this in verse nine. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. I'm going to talk about a madman. Paul describes himself as a madman in hating Jesus in hating everything that Jesus stood for, in hating all those who would follow Jesus. He would cast his lot against them, which was signifying they're guilty, put them to death. He wanted them to deny their faith. He did everything possible to get them to say, I give up Jesus. I give up on this way. I give up my belief in him. I don't want to follow him anymore. And he says these things, even describing his manner of life as being in a raging fury as he persecuted them. But Jesus stopped him, literally, in his tracks. We see this as we continue in Acts. Whenever we see that we learn how Christ changed him, the second piece of our transformation story, how Christ changed Paul. Verse 12 says this, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I want us to stop here just for a moment because I just love this picture. I love the picture of what we see in this passage. Paul wasn't looking for Jesus. Paul wasn't looking for enlightenment. Paul wasn't looking for 
a transformation. He was trying to end it. He was trying to stop Christianity. And so if we ever think that Jesus needs our permission to change our lives, this passage shows us the opposite. You see, Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. He reigns and rules over all things. He desires and accomplishes all that he wants to do and nobody can say, what have you done? Paul says, I was going to kill more and Jesus said, no, you're not gonna go kill anymore. I'm going to change your life. I'm going to transform you. Paul, you are on a fool's errand to try and stop something that the God of the universe is accomplishing. He says, you will not do it. And rather than trying to end me, Paul, why don't you come exalt me? Why don't you come enjoy all that I can offer you? You see, as Paul's life was committed to silencing the talk of a resurrected savior, here his message to the leaders is this. I can no longer deny what I have experienced to be true. I can no longer deny what I have seen with my own eyes and heard with my own ears. I have confirmed the messenger. It's Jesus and he's alive and I cannot help but tell you about it. Then Paul says this, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul says, I will rescue you. And then I'm going to send you on a rescue mission. And I just want you to hear how Jesus describes this work that he's sending Paul on. He says, Paul, you're gonna go and tell people how to be free. He says, there's going to be freedom from spiritual confusion and ignorance. There's gonna be freedom from oppressive tyranny of your souls. There's gonna be freedom from guilt, from condemnation and from eternal punishment. There's going to be the blessing of an inheritance for all eternity. If you're a believer in Christ here today, these things are true of you. These things are things that Jesus bought for you. These are the things that Jesus desires you to share with other people. And if you are here today and you do not know Christ, this is what he offers you. He offers you freedom. He offers you an inheritance and he calls you to believe in him. Lastly, he shares who he is now. So who he was before Christ, how Christ changed him, and who he is now. We see this in verses 19 and 20. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And I find it so fascinating that the thing that Paul was obsessed with, ending Christianity, became the passion through which he wanted to see the name and the fame of Jesus spread. 
And I think this is interesting about conversion. Sometimes we see this, not all the time, but the thing that people are so passionate about in their, in their sinful state becomes a thing that they're so passionate about ending when they become believers. I think of people like Abby Johnson, who used to be the director of Planned Parenthood, who is now a, a, an advocate for the unborn, or John Newton, who was a slave trader in the 1700s, who became one of the advocates of ending slave trade in England in the 1700s. But this isn't always the case. You might think, well, I don't have like a, a super like dark life that I lived before and now I'm in Christ and there's this thing that I can go and pursue. But the reality is this, that for any Christian, any believer in Christ, we all, whether it was a very dark way of living or not, we all were lost. We all were dead in our trespasses and sins. And now we have been redeemed. We have been brought from death to life. We have been given an inheritance. And so we should be passionate about helping others see the light and hear the voice of the Lord. Now, as we conclude this piece, I want you just to think about how over the next week or so, if you haven't already done this, take these three pieces, these three transformation story pieces and seek to shape your own story around that. Take some time telling that to your friends and family and then take time sharing that with others. You see, God has done a great work in transforming you. Now it's time for you to use that story, that unique transformation story and pointing others to him. Now that's the first thing that we see, that it is a transformed life. But the second thing that we see as it relates to an apologetic life is this. It's a biblically saturated life. It's a biblically saturated life. You see, Paul knew that if he was going to defend the faith, he had to know the faith because Paul wants to help everybody see. He wants everybody to see that the Bible is true. The first group of people that he has to deal with are the biblically literate people, the biblically literate people. And you, you know these people and, and you interact with people on, on the spectrum of biblical literacy. Some people who know the Bible very well, some people who know very little. And so for the biblically literate people, Paul wants to help them see that the Bible presents a consistent message. It's a consistent message from beginning to end. In verse 22, he writes this, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to great and small, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. One thing that cannot be said about Paul is that he didn't know the Bible. He knew the Bible backwards and forwards. In fact, he was being accused of blaspheming the law, preaching the resurrection and affirming that the Messiah had come. But what's incredible is that Paul wasn't teaching something new. He wasn't just Johnny come lately who, who decided to, to share some brand new truth with people. In fact, he was just saying, guys, look, I believe the Bible. I believe it so much that whenever I see evidence of this person being dead and raised from the, from the dead, that I have to assume that he must be the Messiah. He must be the one to whom the whole Bible points. You see, he wasn't preaching anything new. He was preaching just the faith, just the faith that was rooted in the Hebrew scriptures. He was preaching the fulfillment of the great hope of Judaism, which culminates in a risen Messiah. 
He was pulling from passages in the Old Testament like Psalm 16:10, where it says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Or Isaiah chapter 42, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And Isaiah 49, six, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will do that, but I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. See, Paul's saying, guys, the scripture has always told us that this was what was going to happen. The Gentiles were going to be brought into the faith. The Messiah was going to come and the light of the gospel would go to the nations. I'm just believing God. I'm just trusting his word. And if we think this sounds familiar, it's because it is. It's the same message that Peter preached. It's the same message that he preached in Pentecost. You see, whenever the gospel starts taking off 30 years earlier, consistently, resoundingly, the message that the apostles preach is this, God is simply keeping his word. He's simply doing what he always said he was going to do. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Trust him, follow him, obey him, turn to him. Not only did he have to deal with the biblically literate, he also had to deal with with the skeptical seeker, the skeptical seeker to whom he is helping him see that history confirms the truthfulness of God's word. Not only is it consistent, but history confirms the truthfulness of God's word. In verse 24, he says this, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. I was talking with a friend uh, at Spring Fling earlier this uh, month. And as we were talking about life and about the Bible, uh, he was expressing how much he's enjoying learning and diving into the word and, and growing in his understanding and how vital that's been in his life. And at the same time, he was asking the question, even though I believe the Bible and I'm, I'm, I'm trusting it, I'm growing in it, what about the people that I converse with that don't believe the Bible is even true? Like if I believe the Bible and I can say, hey, look, in the Bible, it says this, but they say, well, I don't believe the Bible. How can I build a bridge? How can I build a bridge with them so they can see that the Bible is true, that the Bible is accurate and that the Bible should be believed? So in other words, how can we build bridges to show the truthfulness and the reasonableness of the Bible? Paul understood this very thing. You see, Paul recognized that not everybody namely here's Festus, had a good grip of the scriptures. Not everybody believed that the Bible was the word of God, so Paul met them on their own turf. He met them on their own turf, just like we saw in Acts chapter 17 with the men in Athens. He started with what they had, and then he explained to them the truth of the Bible. You see, he can converse with their religious elite, but he can also converse with those who have no context. 
He, he helps them to see and appeals to the nature of the fact that all the things that he was talking about were real events in history. They weren't made up dreams that someone had whenever they were out wandering in a field or in a cave. No, they were actual events that happened in specific times and places in history. And all of the events are falsifiable. Either there was a man named Jesus or there wasn't. Either the man named Jesus was crucified or he wasn't. Even the man named Jesus who was crucified was buried or he wasn't. The same man either rose from the dead or he didn't. And all these things are open to scrutiny. Even Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, there are hundreds of witnesses to this. There are hundreds of people who saw him. The, the idea is this, go ask him if it's true. Go ask him if he's alive. Go ask him if it's real. Even Festus had already shared that this rumor was circulating. He says, guys, this is the reason that Paul's on trial. He's, he's talking about this guy named Jesus. He was dead, but Paul asserts to be alive. So the reality is that they knew the story. See, Paul is imploring them. He's saying, go look at the evidence. The evidence makes the case airtight. It shows that it's true and that it is real. I love the statement that Tim Keller has on this. He says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. The implication is this. If Jesus is alive, then everything that he said is true and must be obeyed. If he's not alive, then we don't need to listen to anything that he said because he's not alive. He's not the Lord. But the reality is, as we look through history, as we look through evidence, we see that he is alive. So friends, if our lives are going to be an apologetic for the truthfulness of the gospel, we must know the word. We must know the Bible. We must not only know the word, but we must grow in our understanding of how to address the skepticism of an increasingly questioning world. The third reality that we see in this apologetic life is that it is a persuasive life. It's a persuasive life. Now, there's an explicit meaning in this and there's an implicit meaning in this. The implicit meaning is this. A consistent life in what we say and what we do will be a compelling witness to the truth of the gospel. So consistency in our lives persuades people of the truthfulness of the gospel. We see this in Paul's life. We see this in the apostle's life. We see this in the early church's life. The explicit meaning in this is this. We actually have to persuade people to follow Jesus. We actually have to talk to them about who he is and what he has done. We see this in verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. So Agrippa says in this, he says, do you want to persuade me? Do you want to convince me to become a Christian? To which Paul responds, yes, 
You, King Agrippa, you, Festus, with your goofy name, you over there writing down the notes uh, for this trial, you in the pew at Scottsdale, you watching online, yes, a thousand percent, yes, I want you to believe this gospel. I want you to be transformed. I want you to be free. I want you to find forgiveness. I want you to find satisfaction in the only place that it can be found. Why wouldn't I want that for you? Why wouldn't I want the best thing for you for all eternity? You see, as Paul stands there in his defense, he's making this defense before these people. His confidence isn't in his ability to get out of the situation. You see, he's already counted the cost. He's already reckoned that his life to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's already counted that the light momentary afflictions were gonna be far surpassed by the enduring weight of glory that he was moving to. And he also knew that no earthly court could render a judgment against his eternity. He had been found in Christ. He was not fearful of what they could do. He was not fearful of their condemnation because in that moment, as he looked across this court, as he looked across this Jewish council, as he looked across these religious leaders who all had the power in their hand to condemn him, they were all powerless to undo their own condemnation. They were all powerless to get out of their eternal predicament. You see, over and above every earthly court where we might argue our cases for our own personal uh, acquittal, the defenses of our own lives, there's a heavenly court where everyone who has ever lived will stand as a defendant. And everyone who ever lives in entering that court enters guilty on all counts, all counts of sin against a holy God. And there is in this court no amount of pleading no amount of community service that we can offer to get us out of our, our problem. Our sentence is an eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. And this court, this heavenly court never gets it wrong. It never gets it wrong. It, 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 always, it always makes sure that there are no wrongful convictions. Well, actually there was one. There was one wrongful conviction. And this conviction wasn't wrongful because of a clerical error, a lack of DNA evidence in some way, shape, or form. No, this was a choice of God the Son, Jesus Christ, to offer himself as a substitute for people who had rejected and despised him, who had run the other way against him, substitute himself for them just because he loved them, just because he loves you. The innocent for the guilty, taking the condemnation that they deserved, upholding the justice that was due to them so that they could have life, forgiveness, and freedom. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3, 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If you're here today, if you're watching online and you never received that, if you've never trusted Christ for your salvation, what would keep you from doing that today? 
What would keep you from embracing the reality of all that Christ has accomplished for you? To make a way that you might have eternity with him. And if you have trusted him, if that is true of you, if you have been found in Christ, I wanna implore you today. I want to challenge you today to embrace the call to live your life as an apologetic, as a defense for the truthfulness of the gospel. Because if we are honest with ourselves, our culture is not flocking to the gospel. It's not flocking to be transformed by the truth of what God says. It is becoming more and more resistant, more and more antagonistic, more and more critical of the church. Our culture on a variety of fronts is attacking not only the message, but the messengers. And I was reminded of this statement as I considered this message over the course of this last few weeks. A transformed life becomes a target for scrutiny. When you take that step saying, I'm gonna live my life to defend the gospel, the spotlight will be on you. The spotlight will be on you. You see, if Paul had continued at Saul, this never would have happened. He would have probably been encouraged, cheered, celebrated for trying to end Christianity. And yet whenever the gospel took root in his life, when Christ embraced his heart, began to shape his world, people began to attack him. People began to scrutinize him. People began to want to silence him. People wanted to discredit him all because of the work that God was accomplishing through him. So as we leave here today, I want this message to encourage us. I want it to challenge us. I want it to remind us that we are not the first. And if the Lord tarries, we will not be the last in a line of witnesses for the truthfulness of the gospel, a gospel that is rooted in the scriptures, a gospel that is rooted in history and a gospel for which a persuasive defense is expected from all who call on the name of Jesus. As we look forward to an eternal rest, a forever kingdom that cannot be taken from us where our king awaits to welcome us, to say good and faithful servant, well done. Welcome to my eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. God, I pray that as we live our lives, that they would be a faithful representation of your message, that we would not be fearful to speak up about Christ. No matter what the culture says, no matter the attacks that are levied against us, I pray that we would be faithful to the end, that we would express our faithfulness through the transformation in our lives, that we would grow deep in our knowledge of your word and our desire to share it with others, and that we would, in fact, open our mouths to help people see that hope is found in Christ and in him alone. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Scotts Hill podcast. And thank you also to those who continue to give with generosity. If you're new to this podcast and want to learn more about Jesus or our church, go to scottshill.org slash next steps for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it onto your social media stories. Whatever you want to do, just make sure to tag us at Scott's Hill. Until next time.